Glad you guys are here this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, be working through verses 26 through 39. It's on page 865 of the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have your own copy of a Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for you to take that with you. It's yours, our gift to you. Uh, Or you can follow along on the YouVersion live event if you're uh, like uh, electronically savvy and, and want to follow along that way. You're welcome to do that. All the notes and uh, the, the sermon notes and the um, quotes and the scripture verses that I'll reference are all there for you as well. And I'd encourage you to do that just so you can take them with you and consider them, think about them through the week. Um, well, last week, as we finished in Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 25, we left Jesus and his disciples in the middle of the sea. Jesus had been uh, with his disciples, had been teaching, and he says, let's go across to the other side. And they climbed in a boat, and they headed off across the sea, and they faced a uh, a storm, and in the midst of that storm, the disciples were frightened. They were terrified, and they woke Jesus up and said, hey, we're going to die. And Jesus says, hey, storm, be still, cease, quit blowing, quit, quit, quit uh, storming, and it did. Uh, and they were shocked. They were surprised. And where the fear that they had for the storm, where, the, where that was, they began to fear Jesus, but they marveled. That fear turned to worship. It turned them to see Jesus more fully for who he was, more fully for what he's capable of doing, to understand his power more clearly. And that power still exists today. But today, in the episode that we begin to read now, we're going to continue to see, we're going to continue to see Luke highlight two things, Jesus' power and the response of people. It seems especially that he's highlighting the, the, the response of fear. And while we don't often talk about fearing Jesus, there's, there's actually sense in it, there's wisdom in it. Um, If we fear God most, we're able to trust him most. Until we fear God most, we won't trust him most. Because if we fear something else more than we fear God, there's a reality that we're going to believe that it can undo us. It can undermine his power, that it's more powerful than him. So our fear and trust have to be, that they are always connected. What we fear tends to be what we uh, lead us to understand what we believe. And today we're going to see, again, his, his power and we're going to see response of people. Particularly as, as we talk about his power, we're going to see Jesus' power to command demons. You know, it's not something, again, it's not something we talk about much today. There's demonic forces in the world. There's a spiritual war that rages all around us, but we tend to brush that aside. We tend to explain it away. We have enough technology and science that, that we can provide answer and explanation. And so we, we push that to the, to the side and we, we look for our pragmatic or practical or physical answers that make sense to us. So Jesus has power, and that power is greater than even the most uh, powerful of our enemies, uh, the demons and Satan himself. But we're also going to see fear. In contrast to last week where we saw the fear cause people to marvel, cause people to worship, this week we're going to see fear cause people to reject. But it's not because they fear Jesus as much as they fear what he's doing and what he might take from them. They fear something else more than they fear him, and so because they do, they reject him. Now, in contrast to Jesus' power, we're going to see man's power, or our lack of power, our inability to really overcome these things on our own. And we're going to see the power of demons, or in contrast to Christ's power, their lack of power. Because truly, in contrast to Christ, they're powerless. It's like a, a rowboat going up against a battleship. It's not gonna, they, they, they don't stand a chance. They might be destructive, 
They're very deceptive, and they're more powerful than we. But they can't outdo Jesus. And so really, I'm telling you this for two reasons, because as we read, I want you to see it. I want you to be able to grasp it out of the Scripture. But second, when we're done, my hope is we'll walk out of here confident, full of hope, and God's power to overcome even the darkest of things in this world. And even as I was standing out here this morning and talking, someone told me I had this terrible dream, been having terrible dreams, and I woke up terrified. We have no reason to fear the darkness anymore. I'm not talking fear of dark. I'm talking about the darkness, the demons, and the devil. Because Jesus is more powerful. And Jesus is for us. Jesus restores us. Jesus puts us back together, and he defeats demons. Our hope is in him. So I hope we'll leave today full of that hope and filled with that confidence to go out and face this uh, broken and hurting world. So let's read Luke chapter 8, begin in verse 8 or begin in verse 26, and we'll make it all the way through verse 39. It says in verse 26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now we're going to stop there. Let me just set the stage, set the tone. So Jesus has said, let's get in the boat, go to the other side. He's got an appointment. He's got a job to do on the other side of the lake. Like he's, he's going there for a purpose. On the way, they face a storm. Jesus calms the storm. His disciples experience his power firsthand. And, and, and that doesn't, it doesn't um, uh, lead them off track. It, they face the storm and they go through it. They get to the other side of it and they continue on. They don't let this uh, uh, stop them or keep them from what Jesus has to do on the other side of the lake. There's a, a bit of controversy in the location that he's headed. It says he's going to the, the country of the Gerasenes. And, and as you read from commentaries and if you read Matthew's account and Mark's account and now Luke's account of this, it seems to be some discrepancy. And all of that discrepancy is driven by the fact that we don't really know exactly where to pinpoint this on a map. And it bothers us because we like details and we like answers and we want all of our stuff tied up in a neat little bow. Hey, this was 2,000 years ago. Maps have changed a little bit since then and names of towns have changed a little bit since then. And so we don't get to know exactly what this place was or where it was. What we do know was on the other side of the lake. Galilee was a region in Judea or Galilee was a region in Jerusalem, Gerasenes may have been a region or it may have even referred to a city that was close to the bank uh, of the lake, but it was on the other side of the lake. Now that's important. And there's a reason it's important because Jesus is about to take his first trip outside of Jewish territory. So today, the guy that he healed is likely not a Jew, but a Gentile. And that matters to you and me because unless you were born of Jewish faith, you're a Gentile. And so Jesus' power, we begin to see already in his ministry, his power isn't just for the Jews. It's going to, to bless all of mankind. It's going to be fruitful for all people. And so, so it's important. So here they are on their way to, to uh, the Gerasenes on the opposite shore of, of, of Galilee, on the opposite shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then, let's just keep reading verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, so they arrived. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So let's just stop right there. Let's, let's deal with this. So we get the, we get the setting. We get, the, we, 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 we get to meet the participants of this event, of this circumstance, uh, the, the, the cast of this episode, if you will. First, we'll talk about the man. The man is, is, uh, is, is possessed by demons, and Luke helps us see just how bad it is by his description. He says, I'll show you four things out of the text. He says he has no clothes on. He's naked. Been that way a long time. Nakedness in, in the scripture is demonstrative of our depravity. It's, a, a, it's demonstrative of our sin and our shame. Now, it's interesting when you go back and you study it. So you go back to Genesis chapter 2. God created man and woman. He places them in paradise in a garden. And they are enjoying the perfection or the harmony in which, he, uh, in which all things crea- created existed before the fall into sin. And it ends chapter 2 and it says, They were naked and without shame. It's okay, so here's this relationship that's completely open, nothing to hide, no secrets, no shame, no reason to go covering oneself up. And then we come to chapter 3 where the Satan, Satan comes in as a serpent and he begins to tempt Eve and he says, Hey, Eve, look at this fruit, isn't it? I mean, that looks, that looks good. Don't you want some of that? It would, be, it would be satisfying to you. It would make you like God. God doesn't want you to have it because you'll be able to see good and evil like he does and you'll be like him. And Eve's like, oh, that sounds awesome because, yeah, it does look really good for food. And I can't imagine why God would keep this from me. Let me have it. And she eats it. And then she turns and gives Adam the fruit. And she's, she's like, hey, Adam, this is good. You ought to try this. And Adam eats it. And immediately, immediately, sin enters them and they want to cover up. They, they make clothes out of leaves. And really what happens in that moment, in, in, in the process that comes, as God comes into the garden and he ends up killing an animal and covering them with the animal's skin, making clothes for them out of the animal's skin, what ends up happening is his covering by animal skin becomes symbolic of his covering of our sin. And so now, all the way through Scripture, from the point of creation, all the way through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, we see nakedness as an example of our depravity, of our sin and our shame. The, the scripture has held it that way always. It's, it's even more interesting to me because in our day and age, we're fighting hard to get back to that place where we can live inside of the pre-fall world so that people can celebrate their nakedness and start taking their clothes off by their own power. They're trying to get there on their own. They're trying to, trying to be that way all by themselves. And so just a few months ago, we have a free the nipple rally down on the square I don't know if you've heard of this. I don't know if you know about it, but there was, there was girls down there seeking to express themselves. They wanted to express their, this is a freedom of expression and, a, and, a, and, a, and an equality issue. Is if, if you go and you look this up, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise Googling it. I mean, be very careful if you go search on the internet. But it's, it's real, it's true, and this is what they, they're saying. They're, 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 saying, they're saying that immodesty is something that should be celebrated, that it's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, you're backwards and, 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 and old-fashioned if you have a desire for modesty. But it's a, it's a, a radical departure from the perspective that Scripture gives us. In fact, this is just my two cents. This is not part of the sermon. It's just a thoughts from Seth. And so if you don't like it, you can throw it away. But, but ultimately, I, I would say that immodesty is a demonstration of our depravity. In fact, 
we can, we, we can come along and we can give rules for one another to follow, to, to dress a certain way. And we can say, hey, you should care enough about your fellow man to keep him from lusting, so cover yourself up. And we can make these rules and we can make these demands, but all we can do is make rules and demands. Uh, all, we can, all we can do to a person is impose on them our rules and demands. We cannot impose modesty. Modesty is the result of the work of God in a person's heart. In fact, modesty, even, even though I don't think it's all bad to consider your fellow man and say, hey, I know that, that men struggle with, the, with their eyes, and so I'm going to cover up my body if you're a woman, and I'm going to cover up my body and, and, and be thoughtful of my fellow man. It's not all bad. But you'll never be able to do it. You'll never have a desire for it if God hasn't done a work in you. In fact, we're going to find this, gen, this demon-possessed man who's running around with no clothes on. Later, we're going to find him clothed and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because that's the natural progression of God's work in us. He brings modesty by the power of his word. And so the, the problem we face when we talk about modesty within the church is we're trying to impose a dress code. We're trying to impose our values on somebody rather than bring the power of God's word to change their heart. And really the, the truth is this works out over and over in every other situation that we come to the world and say you must live this way. Whether it's modesty or, or any other form of depravity. We can't impose this. God's power in his word is what brings this change. And so we must come to people with the gospel. We must come to people with the power of his word. So he's naked. He's running around naked, indicative of how just depraved he is. I know it's a pretty picture. I'm, I'm sure you're glad I've pointed that out over and over. He's not just naked. He's homeless. Right? He's living outside of a house. The text tells us that he's not just, he, he's, not just he, he's, he's a member of the city. He lives in the city. He's supposed to live in the city, but they've sent him away. It's indicative of his isolation. It's indicative of the division that's driven by sin. Again, we go all the way back to the creation, to the moment where Adam and Eve fall into sin. They were naked and without shame, and they eat the fruit. They rebel against God. They sin against God. And the first people we see affected is, or the first relationship we see affected is not their relationship to God. Although it's affected and we see that play out, the very first relationship we see affected is their own. Because immediately they see one another's nakedness and they're shamed. And they cover up, they, they do their best to make clothes out of leaves and cover their shame and cover their sinfulness. And whether you realize it or not, we have been hiding from one another ever since. We, we put on clothes to present a picture of who, and I don't mean clothes in a physical sense. I'm talking about clothes in a metaphorical sense. We put on clothes to present a picture, an image to people that we want them to believe about who we are. Sin divides. And it has isolated this man from the city in which he lived, and they have sent him away. In fact, it's, it's not just in, 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 in our relationship. It's not just between man and uh, one another is a division in the horizontal relationship. It has divided us. It has separated us from God. And now Satan would do all he can to make us believe that rather than God being one who we'd find our refuge in, one we'd run to, he's saying, he's making us believe, he's bl blowing up this lie that God is one that we would want to run from. And the truth is, this works itself out in many other ways than us just sending people away when we don't like them. 
every division that we have in the world, every division that we have devised, racism, the division between two ethnically diverse groups of people, one saying that I am better than you, I am, more, uh, I, I am, I am worth more than you, that you are not even human as much as I am. It's driven from the sin that divides us. The same sin that this man experienced is the root of the sin of racism. Classism, being wealthy and being of good stock, even like lines of royalty, like your blood is better. It's driven from sin. Sexism, it's better to be a man. Oh no, women are more capable. I can do anything you can do and I can do it better. Every one of these divisions, every one of these places in which we, which we promote ourselves and seek to, to, to make sure that everybody can see our value and our worth and at the same time, even if it's unintentional, at the same time diminish the wealth and value of another person, all of those divisions, every last one of them are driven by the root of sin. And this man is experiencing it because, hey, we don't want to deal with him. We don't want to deal with these problems. We don't want to deal with this violence. We don't want to, they could see the problem. And their solution was to divide, was to get rid of him. And we do it every day. He's naked, he's homeless, and he lives among the tombs. What a symbolic picture of the place that we, we, live, we live in today. We're breathing, we're eating, we're talking, we're laughing, we're experiencing, we're we're relating. And the truth is, apart from Christ, we are walking dead. And if Christ has invaded us, we're living in a cemetery. It's the hope of this world. It's Christ. But without him, with, apart from him, nothing but death. How long had this gone on? For a long time. I think, that's, I think it's important to notice that. I think it's important to call that out because this isn't like Jesus ran in and found the, the Kool-Aid spilled on the carpet just in time to get it up before it stains. These demons had had time with this man. They had done their damage. Their work had been rooted deeply within them, within him. He, 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 was, he, he was hurting and he was in darkness and he was experiencing the depths of the depravity and the power that they exuded on him. He had been experiencing this. I, it's hard to even imagine. It's hard to even fathom how deeply, how, how horrifically he was hurting. Hard to imagine the depth of the, of the darkness that he walked around in. How emotionally unstable he was as a result of this utter darkness. You see, the reality is it wasn't just a demon that he was dealing with. It was many. Luke tells us that when Jesus spoke to them, when he said to them, hey, what's your name? They, they said, uh, Legion, because there's many of us. The, the demonic oppression, Jesus had faced this before. It wasn't anything new. It wasn't like this is the first time he's going to cast demons out. But I think it was probably the first time, at least that we know of to this degree. 
He says legion because there's many there. Now, now some people would tell us that there's probably 2,000 demons. And they take that because there was 2,000 pigs that they're going to go into here in a minute. And, and, and so they think it's one demon per pig. Many demons can, you know, live in a man, but only one demon can live in a pig. That's their thought, I guess. I don't know. But, but so they think, oh, 2,000. And then other people think, oh, well, wait a minute. No, no, he's talking about legion. He's talking about a Roman legion. He must be talking about 6,000. So maybe 6,000 demons are living in this guy. Well, I don't know why they're debating it, because I don't think that demons are very trustworthy to begin with, so we don't know really how many are there. He might have just been puffing himself up, trying to, you know, like when you do when you're trying to scare a bear, you raise your arms and you try to make yourself look bigger than you really are. Like this demon, this set of demons, this many demons that are there, they're like, oh, well, hey, this is Jesus. We better puff up so that he gets scared and runs away. It didn't work. It wasn't just the power of one that was affecting this man. This man was in utter darkness and had been for a long time. In fact, maybe, just maybe, you figure out and determine who you think the most evil person you've ever met is. I'm guessing. I'm just guessing I wasn't there, but I'm guessing that this guy makes them look tame. Because the amount of sin and the amount of depravity and the amount of pressure and the amount of power that these demons were exercising, it was so bad that they did everything they could to get rid of him. But when they see Jesus, when they see Jesus, these demons that had controlled this guy, when they saw Jesus, they fell on their knees at his feet. It's symbolic of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the power and authority that they recognized he had. And they called him something. They said something to him that was amazing. And it's important that we hear it. It's important that we call it out. Son of, uh, of the Most High God, they called him. They said, what would you do with us? What do you have to do with us, Son of the Most High God? They knew the answer to a question that's been being asked over and over and over by the people that Jesus has, has, has uh, encountered. John the Baptist, back in chapter 7, John the Baptist sends his disciples and he says, Hey, go ask Jesus, is he the one to come or are we to expect another? Are you the one to come? And later in chapter 7, Jesus heals, or, or sorry, he forgives a sinful woman. She's likely a prostitute. And Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. And, and people sitting around are like, Who is this? Who is this that forgives sins? Then the storm that had just encountered them with his disciples, his disciples see him calm the seas and he's like commanding the creation to obey and it obeys. And they're like, who is this that even commands the wind and the waves? The demons know. He's the son of the most high God. He is the God who came and put on flesh that he might dwell among us, that he might step into our existence. We are seeing his humanity and his divinity side by side. We're seeing the reality of his incarnation. He stepped into this world to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He came into this world to bring creation back to peace, to bring peace into the created order. And we see this week that he stepped into this world to put darkness in its place. In fact, that's the first point that I would bring out that I would want you to see, that I'd want you to bring home. Jesus, the man who is God, wages war against demons by the power of his word and forever reigns victorious. He, he, he's the winner of this. 
He's the one that's going to come out on top. He's going to, come, he's going to walk away unbruised. He's going to walk away and, and they are going to obey his commands. He's going to walk away from this and, and be the victor. He's always going to be the victor. Always and forever. You see, these demons, when they see Jesus, they come to him and they fall at his feet. And they're like, hey, what would you do with us? Don't torment us. They understand his power. They understand his position. They understand his authority. They get completely that they are looking at God. And they are afraid. And they are fearful. And they are pleading with him. That's all they can do is plead with him. Beg him, please, please don't torment us. Because they know Jesus is the one in the position of power. And they know that by the power of his word, he could cause them great anguish. Does this fill you with a sense of hope? I think too often we diminish the, the, the power and the presence of a spiritual war. And so it's hard for us to connect here, I think. Brothers and sisters, there is a war raging. There's darkness all around us. And it's bearing its fruit out in the world we live all around us. Day after day after day, we are seeing the fruits of the depravity that's brought by the devil and his demons and is brought by our sinful flesh and desire for ourself. But when Jesus faced these demons, they could do nothing but beg. And it's interesting because we see the contrast in this passage. We see the contrast of the, the power of people. They're like, oh, well, we're going to chain this guy up. We're going to put him away from us. We're going to separate him, separate him off. We're going to put him under God. We're guard. We're going to put him in, under lock and key. We're going to chain him to the rocks. But they weren't able. He would bust his chains. He would outdo the guards. He would, he would get out from under guard, and he'd run off into the desert. The demons, they were like, oh, man, we're living large. Jesus isn't anywhere near us. He's on the other side of the lake. We can bring all kinds of destruction and mayhem. We can just make people's lives miserable. We can make them wish they had a better existence. We can do all that we've intended to do. And here Jesus steps out of this boat into the middle of their day. And he puts them in their place and he towers over them and they fall in submission at his feet. And they groan under the weight of his authority, the weight of his authority, and they beg. And they keep begging. See, Jesus is the man who is God, who wages war against demons by the power of his word and forever reigns victorious. They are a defeated foe, these demons, powerless against God. All they do is beg, and they keep begging. Verse 31, you'll see them beg some more. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter into these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they drowned. See, here's the thing is that demons, no matter what they do, they can only do what God has allowed them to do. They can only do what God gives them permission to do, what God gives room for them to do. John Piper, in a sermon from the book of Job, if you've not read the book of Job, it demonstrates God's sovereignty and his power, even over the realms of darkness. 
And John Piper, preaching from the book of Job, says this, God sets limits of Satan's power to cause pain. He sets limits of Satan's power to cause pain. Our God is not frustrated by the power and subtlety of Satan. Satan cannot make a move without the permission of God Almighty. He might be a lion. He may be a lion. And, and to us, think about it, he's a lion. Like He can destroy us. He can rip us to shreds. He may be a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. And God reigns him in or gives him slack according to God's own sovereign plan or sovereign purposes. At the end of the day, Satan, the lead demon, the, the head guy, the most powerful of all the demons, even he was found to be submissive and obedient to the power and authority of God. Even these many, many demons would only be allowed to do what Jesus would allow them to do. They may be lions, but they are lions on a leash. And Jesus holds that leash. He commands them, and they fall in submission before him. One other perspective of Jesus' power against demons found later in Luke. We may eventually get there. It's Luke chapter 11. Jesus is answering the question of, is your power from the devil? And he's undermining that argument. He's giving answers to that argument, kind of tearing it to shreds, if you will. But in the midst of it, he says something pretty amazing. It says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Normally in the scripture, God's power is demonstrated, it's, it's illustrated by his outstretched hand and his mighty arm. Deuteronomy 26.8, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. Psalm 136.12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, his power being demonstrated by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Luke 151. Mary's song, like Mary finds out that she's going to be carrying the baby Jesus, that she's a virgin and she's going to be pregnant and she's going to give birth to, to Jesus, this man who is God. And she sings this song. It's called the Magnificat. She says in the midst of that, he has shown his strength with his arm. Like It's demonstrative of his power. And as we think about his arm, we think about the full might, the full power of God. But in this moment, Jesus answers and he says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, wait, demons only require a finger. Now, he is so powerful in contrast to the demons. He is so powerful in, in, in light or over them that they're more like an insect being plucked off of them, a mosquito being tapped to, to, to death than, than, than something that could do any harm. By the power that's wrapped up in his finger, he commands them. He casts them out. He does what he does with them. This is the picture. And some would ask here, okay, well, if Jesus is waging war, why in the world is he acquiescing? Why in the world is he negotiating with these demons? Like, why is he even giving them an opportunity to speak? Why isn't he just sending them away? Why would he submit to the demons like this? I don't think he's submitting to the demons I don't think he's giving them any power. I don't think he's giving them any authority. In Matthew, the, the, the account that Matthew shares with us, there's a phrase that tells us that the demons made reference to the point at which God would finally 
deal with them. In the end, there will be a point where demons are put away forever, and they will be given no room, no quarter. There's nothing. They are going to be put away forever, and they are going to be cast into Hades, cast into hell, and they will exist there forever and ever and ever. But that point isn't today, and that point isn't on the day in which Jesus is casting these demons out of this man. He's not submitting to them. He's not giving them any room. He's simply submitting himself to the, to the plan that his father had set in place before the foundations of the world. And while we don't like it, while we won't uh, readily just celebrate, while we're not going to jump up and down and get excited about it, even demons have a place in God's plan. It's the truth. You can talk to him about that, and you can bring that up to him all you want, and you can tell him how wrong you think he is. But if he's more powerful than demons, I'd be careful with that. Just saying. I don't like it because I see what it does to people. I see how the darkness invades people and and moves people towards destruction. But even demons right now are serving God's purpose to demonstrate his power and his glory. Imagine if the demons hadn't hadn't invaded this man's life in this way, how would we know that God could command the darkness the way he does? It would be left out in there, a question we could never answer. But not just that. So, so uh, there's another question that is, is arise from this couple of verses. Like, doesn't Jesus care about pigs? Like, why would he let the demons go into the pigs if he knew that they were going to run down the hill, hill and destroy themselves, right? Like, isn't, isn't Jesus procreation? Isn't he, isn't he green, you know? Isn't he an animal lover? <laughs> Sorry, it's the truth. That's what people ask. The question I wonder, though, is, is why would we blame what happened as a result of the demons entering the pigs? Why would we blame that on Jesus? Who sent the pigs down the hill? The demons. Let's give them responsibility for what they're responsible for. Oh, Jesus allowed it. Yeah, he allowed it. Are we going to blame all of our hardship and our pain and our trial and tribulation on God? Are we not going to take any responsibility for it? Brothers and sisters, the root of our trouble, the problems that, that arise, the difficulties we face are not God's fault. He is not to blame. Demons are divisive, they are destructive, they lead things to death. And so we get to see this, this contrast in, in play. These demons, are, they, they take these pigs, they had been destroying the man, and they, they can't help but destroy the pigs. It's what demons do. Our sin, demons, darkness, it moves us to destruction, it moves us to death. But in contrast, in contrast, we get to see that Jesus... The man who is God who wages war with demons and wins. That man who is God is able to restore his image by the power of his word in even the most depraved of sinners. In fact, we see it in the next verses, verse 34 through 37. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. People can't help but talk about the amazing things they see happen, like these supernatural events. Just can't help but talk about them. Everybody gets excited. And they told it in the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from, the demon, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, 
and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. You see the distinction between the power of God and his word and the power of demons and sin. One leads to death, one leads to destruction. It will always lead to death. It will always lead to destruction. The reason we call one another so closely to live in light of the truth and under the instruction of God is not because we want to keep a thumb on each other. I can tell you where a sinful life ends up. At the bottom of a lake, dead next to the pigs that the demons led there and killed. That's where sin, that's where darkness, that's where demons lead. If you are, if you are flirting with or, or living outside of the instruction of God, I would plead with you for your good. Repent of your sin and turn to God. He restores his image in such a way that we now sit like this demon-possessed man who had been freed. We are able to sit at the feet of Jesus. We are able to enjoy his presence. We are able to learn from him. Let's not toy with the demons and the things that they tempt us with. New Testament scholar Werner Forster in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament writes, In most of the stories of possession... Demon possession is what he's referring to. What is at issue is not merely sickness, but destruction and distortion of the divine likeness of man, according to creation. He's trying to undo our identity. He's trying to undo our divine likeness, the image of God that is within us. Demons seek to undo. He goes on, the center of personality, the volitional and active ego is inspired by alien powers which seek to ruin man. Because if we can be ruined then God's glory is diminished. Demons don't care about you. They don't long for your good. They don't desire. They don't fight for you. They fight to destroy you. Jesus, on the other hand, is in the business of redemption, restoration, and renewal. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let me just qualify that, even demon possession. This guy's demon possessed, and he gets to... It gets, gets to experience the beauty and majesty and glory of God, even that worked for good in his life. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know why Jesus saved you? Certainly to bring you into heaven, certainly to provide you an inheritance, certainly to bless you with all things that he has given you. But his purpose in you is to restore his image in you, to undo the work of sin in you, to make you look like Jesus. God's desire for you is that you reflect the image of his son. He goes on, he, conformed, uh, he, he did this to be, so that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that, that he, his son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers so that there would be many of us standing in his presence at the end of time where Jesus would be at the front and alongside him there would be brothers and sisters and people scattered all over in such a way that now we look like Jesus and we glorify God in perfection. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is not just a one-time event. This is the overarching work of God in the gospel. He is moving all things to be made new. 
This is God's work to restore his image and you and renew and restore his creation to be as it was always intended to be. This is his work. So brothers and sisters, what do we do? Romans 12, 2, do not, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That renewal comes by the word of God, by the, by, by, the, by, the, by the work of God within us and the word of God upon us, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the work of Jesus Christ to renew his image in us, to restore his creation around us. And the crazy thing is, is that this is something we're celebrating but when these people walk out and they see this demon-possessed guy sitting on the ground at Jesus' feet, wearing clothes, mind you, like you'd think they'd be clapping at that, right? Like he put some clothes on, that's a good thing. But they're frustrated. They're upset. In fact, they're, they're, they're bothered. They're afraid. See, rather than celebrating what Jesus had done, rather than seeking, uh, seeing hope in what Jesus had done, rather than marveling at Jesus' power, they fear him, but they don't fear him in the sense of, hey, you're awesome, we want to worship you. They fear him in the sense of, hey, what else are you going to take from us? They fear more loss. Like, they're frustrated because they've lost 2,000 pigs. They value the life of those pigs so much that in their actions and in their response, they're saying, hey, put the demons back in that man and give us our pigs back. We'd rather have our pigs We'd rather have our stuff. We'd rather have our life. We don't want this stuff to cost us anything. We don't want to feel, we don't want to feel the loss of anything. See, instead of fill them with a fear that turned into worship, that led into faith, more than fear Jesus, they feared the loss of more stuff. So they said, hey, would you please leave? Rather than celebrating, they rejected. And the truth is, we continue to do that even to this day. Think about the world we live in. Think about the hurt and the harm maybe even people in this room have felt. The, the, the fruit of sin that rages around us. I was in Detroit a week or so ago, and while I was there, I, um, while I was there, I was able to spend some time with a church planter that works in his neighborhood. It's the neighborhood he grew up in is between six mile and eight miles, two roads in Detroit, and, and in the midst of this rough, rough neighborhoods. His church has boarded up houses, and he was kind of celebrating the fact that his churches had boarded up these houses. And just being naive to the whole situation that's, that's existing in that place. I mean, I'm thinking, well, you got squatters. In fact, I said that. You, the people come in and squat and tear up the houses, and they can't do anything with them. He... He said, no, we have to board them up because people hide in them. And then they run out and they snatch kids that are on their way to school and they drag them back in and they rape them. 
our world is broken. The reality of darkness is all around us. I was standing outside talking to somebody just afterwards. Somebody else was shot this week. A school was, was attacked this week. You see, the reality is the world understands that there is a problem. They understand that it's broken. And these people are doing all they can to deal with it. And they're like, send it away. Let's just not think about it. Let's cover it up. Let's find some way to handle it. We'll wrap it in chains and we'll put it under guard. It's not enough. We can't hold back the darkness. We can't hold back the depravity and the power of sin. But brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, hear me. While the gospel makes us aware, it also provides us a solution. His name is Jesus. And he comes and he wages war against the demons and he reigns victorious. There's no reason to fear them. They are powerless in front of him. And he doesn't just reign over, wage war and win. He restores us. And he makes us new and he enables us to sit at his feet and he puts clothes on us and allows us to sit in the midst of his love and his grace and his mercy. And by the power of his word, he's not just restoring us, he's bringing his creation to be, to, to be what he always intended it to be. And there's coming a moment, there's coming a point in time when we'll quit counting on our systems to save us, when we'll quit counting on the, the goodness of mankind to do something that cannot do, when we'll quit imposing our standards on a world that is powerless to live in light of them. Man, it's time for us to go and tell them about Jesus and his power to save us from the darkness and his power to win this war against depravity and his power to make us new. See, we got no business going out into a world and simply joining in their song of all the problems. Don't misunderstand me. Go highlight the problems. But if you're a Christian You've commissioned, been commissioned not just to go and tell the problem. You've been commissioned to go and provide the solution. In fact, in light of all he did, this is exactly what he does with this man. This man who experienced his power over demons. This man who experienced his power to be made new, to be renewed, to have his image, uh, Christ's image restored in him. As the story concludes, Jesus says to him, Well, this man says to him, he wants to go with verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city. Notice the switch. Notice the the connection here. He went out proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I think to this man, Jesus was God. And in this moment where he had experienced his power over darkness and experienced the restorative power of his presence, he understood that to be sent away and told to go talk about God was to be sent away and go told to talk about Jesus. Look into our world. 
And you don't have to look far to see that it's broken. You don't have to look far to see that they understand it's broken. But increasingly, you have to look around for Christians who are willing to talk about the solution that God has provided. Just consider this week, as you drive from place to place, as you sit in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, how many people will you pass who need to hear that there's a solution to their problem? We don't live in Detroit, but don't think that darkness isn't here. Don't be surprised by what sin will do and people here. There's a reality that just like this man, we've been sent to go and tell this story. This story that brings awareness, this story that highlights the problem, but also provides a solution. And I love how Jesus sets him up for this because he doesn't say, hey, go get learned, go to seminary, make all, you become a minister, and then you go. He says, hey, just go tell them what God has done for you. If you have been saved, you have experienced enough of God's power to go and tell somebody how to be saved. Jesus Christ died on a cross in your place for your sin. You confess, you recognize, you're confronted by the gospel. You realize I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus is him. He saved me. He made me new. He's making me new. Jesus is the man who is God, who sends the restore, those restored by his power, the power of his word, with the power of his word, that others may be restored. He sends us, having been restored by the power of his word, he sends us to restore others by the power of his word. That's all we need. And does your life bear testimony to his power? Or are you living in unison with a sinful world? Are you living like demon-possessed people? Or are you striving after holiness? And do your words bear testimony to his power? Are you singing his praises? Or are you singing along with the rest of the world? Let's go. Let's tell them that they might see that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness, that there is light in the darkness, that there is a solution to the problem that they know exists. And brother and sisters, whatever your problem is today, the solution I'm asking you to go tell people about is the solution he's provided for you. Jesus is more powerful. He is able of not only defeating darkness and sin, he is capable of making you new. Trust him. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here. So many things to ponder and consider. Would you drive the truths of these words, your scripture, to the depths of our heart that it might, might do its work. That it might not just sanctify us and cleanse us, but that it might empower us and propel us. That we would turn and live our lives in honor of you, to glorify you, to, to live our worship out loud. And that we would go and tell 
and proclaim the truth of the solution of our problem that others might know, that they might come to know you and turn and worship you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.